0: learning greek which was not a slow process i had 10 weeks to learn to read greek it's you dream in greek I, i'm not kidding you do i don't you know i don't have a lot of dreams but i did i dreamed in greek they said i would and i did um i remember them vividly saying the real most potent thing that learning to translate scripture will do to you is it will make you slow down and pay attention you don't have to learn Greek or Hebrew to take that lesson and apply it to reading the Bible. Uh, trying to read an interlinear, pick a language, buy an interlinear, have some fun with some vocab cards—great idea. Okay, you don't have to. Um, but the point of slowing down is to pay attention to the words because these aren't just any old words. This isn't a novel. It's not a novelty. It's not meant to be either entertaining or fun, although it is quite. Boggling, if you get into the lore a bit, and and let the history of it be real. Moses, particularly then, of all of the Bible, and Genesis even more than the rest of Torah, uh, every single word kind of matters for the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible is just like, what did he say How is that turn of phrase? What does it mean? It just, it expands on what's there in Genesis. And now we're going to take Genesis 47 to 50 and do it all in 45 minutes. And I just promise you it's not possible. So I can't. And to some extent, I'm going to tell you this week, if you've never done it, go listen to the other sermon. SP815.org, our website, it will be up by the end of the week. Go listen to the other sermon for the front end of the story. We're not going to be able to look at it tightly today because I want to get the back end of the story and I want to make sure we give due diligence to chapter 49, which is really where the whole thing just takes a left turn because the whole thing's about Joseph so far. And it's still, 49 almost ends like it's about Joseph only while Joseph is giving the blessing of his father to inherit the double portion, kind of like Esau. Um, He gets the money at the end of the day. Uh, when he's given that as a promise and that his children are going to be more numerous than any of the other tribes they even both will become their own tribes nonetheless the scepter the rod the staff the symbol of authority for the house and for the covenant promises goes to judah and it's weird and in the meantime other guys are getting called like gazelles and wolves and you get to chapter 49 you read it you're like what was that so i want to i want to answer that question today but inside the story as we close the story too. So we just heard read already the part about how they get taken to Goshen and Joseph coaches them a little bit. He's like, look, they hate shepherds, but they need shepherds. So guess what? We can take over. Just go to Goshen. Say this. When Pharaoh says, who are you? Say you're shepherds and watch what happens. Do you remember? Do you remember when Pharaoh says, Oh, these are your brothers. If any of them know anything, put them in charge. So let's just do a little moment of history here. Um, There's these maps, hopefully somewhere near you in the pew. Um, I'll flash it on the screen there for a moment. Um, It's a map of of Upper and Lower Egypt, which is super confusing because Lower Egypt is north, (laughs) and Upper Egypt is south. Yeah, so like it's not the way we think. Uh, They didn't live with maps; they lived with terrain, right? And so Upper Egypt was high up there. You had to go. And Thebes is the capital of Upper Egypt. And uh, Hierapolis is more Memphis. That's the the capital area of lower Egypt. Goshen, not on the map, is between Heliopolis and Tanis, Right there in the Delta Valleys of the Nile. Beautiful land. And Egypt will go through three kingdoms. We got real creative when we studied Egypt. Guess what they call them? The Old Kingdom. The Middle Kingdom and the new kingdom. That's not what they called it, okay? The Egyptians didn't call it that. But we have these three kingdoms. And I'm, I'm pretty confident that right here, we're in the middle kingdom with Joseph. And we're at the very end of the middle kingdom. And they settle in Goshen. And what's going to happen between the middle kingdom and the new kingdom when in Exodus it says another pharaoh who arose who did not know Joseph is actually like three dynasty changes, attempts after after the entirety of Lower Egypt is taken over by a foreign people unknown to history who also disappear from history, and scholars have no clue who they are. Their name just means not Egyptians. And this group takes over by bureaucracy and management, actually, all of Lower Egypt for like 200 years, and that's called the intermediary period. Until after, like the great, 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 great grandsons, whoever was in charge of that space, they were doing so well that the kings, the pharaohs, who were stuck up in Thebes, which is in upper Egypt, they kept trying, trying, trying. And finally, the guy who's going to throw the babies into the Nile, he conquers this space. You might imagine after you conquer people who formerly were not your people, but were bureaucrats and enslave them all, you could maybe kill all their firstborn sons. You might imagine that'd be a good tactic. If you want to run an empire, let me suggest it's exactly what happened. And also what this means is that when Joseph put his family in charge of Goshen, when Egypt collapsed after all the money that Joseph made for the Pharaohs destroyed their families because they didn't work and they just spent money and they all lost control and everything collapsed in society, well, while it collapsed, the family of Israel, they were just taking care of everything where they were. And it got better and better and better until they just were taking care of everything where they were until they got boastful and proud and then they got destroyed. And then Moses came. We're not going to be able to do more than just that, but let that be kind of a picture of how amazing this impact of Joseph and the family is on that space. If you can just dream for a second that the scholars who argue about who brought about the second intermediary period of Israel, you're like, well, obviously it was Joseph's family maintaining control by the people in charge, let it all fall apart. And if you've never heard that story before, you're not watching America or Britain years ago, or any country that the elite think too highly of themselves and forget God. Right. So it's just the same story over and over again, which is why we're going through it. But let's highlight something else I didn't highlight at the first service yet, and that's something that happens before all of the kind of collapsing of Egypt. Uh, Joseph has definitely made a lot of money for Pharaoh. In the first year, he takes the money. In the second year, he takes the land. In the third year, they sell themselves into indentured servitude. So every year from then on, taxes, one-fifth to Pharaoh. Unless you're a priest, which is going to make the priestly class into a very wealthy and domineering class, like you find about the time of Exodus, actually. Um, So, you know, you have a lot of setup going on here. All this is happening, and then Jacob, Jacob dies. And you heard that he was 130 when he meets Pharaoh, he's 147 when he dies. Uh, and I, I guess I will take a moment here to talk about age a little bit, because it, it is important. Um, you know, in, the, in Genesis, you have this amazing moment where you know, the first sons of Adam are living like 800 years, right, and so you're some you know skeptical modern person, and you're like, yeah, sure, it's like Vishnu and all the other Egyptian myths or the Greek myths or whatever. Um, Yeah, maybe. Uh, Unless the world was so different that it was so different, we can't even imagine it. And and what could be so different? What could make a world that different? A world that existed before there was a flood that covered the entire planet, right? So if you can imagine this whole planet, if you've seen the Rockies, covered by water, that would probably change the environment, you know, a touch. And perhaps, perhaps then, that would make it so it's harder to survive, To the level where God's like, it's going to be so hard now, I'm going to let you eat the animals because otherwise you're just done for. And that that happens at the flood moment. And the flood moment is also where he says, man does so much evil, I can't let him live beyond 120 years anymore. If I let a guy live to be 800, all he does is murder everybody. So I need to kill them before they reach that point, while they still care about their grandkids, hopefully, right? Uh, Before his grandkids have grown up and become jerks, perhaps. They're still cute and on the floor. Yeah. And so um God limits us to this age of 120. We see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that they they do outlive it. Moses dies right at 120 precisely if I recall. You will have a guy named Jehoiada in the king's time lived to be 130. Uh, He's a high priest who brings the people back to God, and God just wants a long reign. It's the end of Jehoiada's life that's good. He has to live like 80 years under, like the last seven years are under Athaliah, who's this witch who's murdering children, right? And so it's not like his whole life was great, which brings you back to what does Jacob say about his 130 years, short and evil. Let me review. Second favorite son, they thought he was a woman, kinda. Yeah, had to steal something, but then brother's going to kill me. I'll go live with my uncle. He tricks me into slavery. Gives me the wrong wife. Gives me the right wife. She's barren. She has one. She's dead. He's dead. That's this guy's life. Now, I don't know. I've had some tragedy, but I'm glad to be Jonathan and not Jacob. I'll tell you. I mean, it's, it's pretty rough. But I'm going to learn the lesson that Jacob has, which is that this life is suffering. And the name of Jesus is sufficient to praise your way through it, knowing that the joy that is set before us is not worth comparing to the suffering that's actually here to teach us, to discipline us into prayer, praise, thanksgiving, all these good things. Jacob dies. He calls his sons together for a blessing. We're gonna zoom in on that. But I wanna jump ahead in the story, okay, to chapter 50. And we're gonna read some of chapter 50. Um, uh, actually, we're gonna read... I think we have the time. This will be worth it. I'm just going to read all of chapter 50. I'm not going to comment on all of it, but the whole story, I just want you to be exposed to it here. What happens uh, after uh, Joseph sees his father die, it says, then verse one, we're on page 43. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. You know, mourning in the Old Testament was a physical experience. It wasn't like stiff upper lip kind of thing. We'll get through it. No, it was like, no, throw your head, your, yourself on the body and wail to God. And it's like, this was not a surprise. The guy's 147, right? But again, death stings. And honestly, to, to yell about it, kind of feels better. Um, Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians to embalm his father. So he gets all the treatment of a pharaoh, all the treatment of a royal man in the Egyptian world. Uh, the physician's, you know, scientists, whatever you want to call them, magicians—it's all the same for them, and kind of for us sometimes. Um, the physicians embalmed Israel. That's Jacob. Forty days are required for it, so that's a flood number there. By the way, remember four is for the whole earth, ten is completion. Uh, so there's a there's a cosmic what ritual going on here that Joseph's in charge of. It's it's a confession of his faith. This isn't witchcraft for Joseph. This is this is let's recognize the promises of God. And the flood was for 40 years. And so we mourned for my father 40 days. I I don't know. It got there somehow like that, though. Uh, As the days were there, it's even the days required for embalming. So the Egyptians know something's important about the number 40. Numerology is kind of for another thing, but Genesis is full of it. Uh, The Egyptians wept for him 70 days. I mean, we don't really do that, right? I mean, we just don't have time in America. we got to get back to work. Uh, How would you ever weep for 70 days, like two and a half months. I mean, he's a king, right? Effectively treat him like a king. But imagine like we, we will lower the flag to half mass. Sometimes the president will do that. He's the only one who can do that. I never know why though. Yeah. But imagine you know 70 days straight. And, and you might think back to the death of a president. If you remember that in your lifetime, the kind of like public spectacle that occurs, that's what's happening for Joseph, the king's right hand's ancient wizard father. Right? It's all, everyone's joining in on this thing. Uh, when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, if I found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh saying, so 110 years later, 10 days later, my father, he says, made me swear I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. So Jacob, before he dies, says to Joseph, bury me beside Isaac and Abraham and uh, Sarah and Rebekah and Leah, not Rachel. Therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up. So Pharaoh recognizes this. Remember, he's like 17. He's like, yeah, of course you go bury the guy. Go do whatever that old man said. I want to be blessed, right? Uh, uh, within him, he went up with the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, like the entire empire's tribute and triumph is going with this dead body through deserts to get up to this little tiny hill with a tree the oak at Mamre, uh, where they can bury these guys in a a small cave. It's a cleft with two divisions in it, something like that. Um, All of Egypt goes up for this. It's a big deal, right? All the household of Joseph, his brothers, the father's household, only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father for seven days." When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim, uh, the mourning of Egypt. Mizraim is what Egypt called itself. Yeah, they didn't call themselves Egypt. They called themselves Mizraim, right? Uh, uh, The mourning of Mizraim, it is beyond the Jordan, this place. I'm going to just kind of talk about that here, if you can imagine it now. You got like all the nobility of your country, the king and his great procession, and you go to the middle of this kind of like field area where there's a bunch of city-states around. And these city-states are 200, 800 people in, a, in a, a walled town, right? And they're dangerous. They got bronze. They got swords. They're barbaric, right? Uh, but, but you come in with this great host, You you plop down the middle of a field, and you have a festival for seven days, during which mostly you do a lot of yelling. And wailing and shouting as a group, and you all do it together. There's clashing cymbals and banging, there's a, the bodies at the center the whole time. And everyone in the land's like, you know, you know, don't go to Burning Man if you don't know what you're getting yourself into. And if you don't get the reference, well, Woodstock will do it for you too, I suppose. Okay, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is kind of what it was. Only it is godly in every way, and even redeeming the kingdom of Egypt into the godliness of it. Yeah, uh, uh, burning men and Woodstock, if no one told you, they weren't godly. They are not godly. It is not virtue people go to those things or remember those things for, right? Um, uh, let's get back to the text. Uh, Thus his sons, so now it includes all the tribes or all the brothers, uh, did for him as he commanded them. Uh, for his sons carried him into the land of Canaan, buried him in the cave at the field of Machpala. Uh, that's again, a, a way of describing Hebron. Um, to the east of Mamre, which is near Hebron, uh, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim, the Hittite to possess. It's a burying place. Again, Hebron, the most common name for that area. Uh, After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now, that was just to get here. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to themselves, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. Have you ever had to build trust with somebody? Not easy, especially if they don't trust you. If they don't trust you, it's not a lot you can do. You can be trustworthy, and if they still don't trust you, if they're like, well, what's he going to do now? They can come, You can come up with a reason for anybody to betray you at any given time, if you try hard enough. I'm pretty sure you can. not I mean, and think about this one too. This one's even in the family, right? What did Esau say after Jacob stole the blessing? I'm going to kill him after dad dies. Respect for the father. It's an amazing thing in the ancient world to the level where you would withstand your wrath. You would hold back until Father's dead, and then you let it out. And they're like, well, maybe this whole time that's what Joseph is doing. And again, Joseph has wept on their shoulders. He has lavished wealth upon them. He has cared for their grandchildren. What more could he do? Huh, Jesus, right? What more shall I have done for you, O my people? The remonstrances of, of Good Friday. Um they sent a message to Joseph, right? Well, let's come up with a trick. And it's, this is the story of Genesis all the time too. God gives promises. You're like, well, we'll make it happen. Here's a trick, right? And God's like, come on guys, you know, I'm in charge. Uh, but they send this, this message to Joseph. Your father gave this command before he died. Yeah, let's tell him a lie. The dad said he had to keep us alive (laughs) because he loves dad enough, maybe he'll do it, right? Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers their sin because they did evil to you. Now, notice how they're right, though. They're asking for forgiveness, just kind of in a stupid way. They could have said, "Joseph, remember Yahweh, the God of our fathers, who forgives and please forgive us." They could have said that way instead, right? But they're getting to the right promise by the end of it, and Joseph don't care, He's going to give them the right promise right back. Right? So Joseph wept. And do you, why? Because he could see how they didn't trust him. Yeah, it had to hurt. I mean 17 years. They've been having dinners together. He knows all their kids by name. And now you think I waited all this time to kill you? Right? He's he's hurt. But what does he say? Um, Do not fear, verse 19. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. That that means great, great. I looked it up, technical term, great, great. Fourth generation. Uh, the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. So Joseph adopts Machir's sons. Um, uh, Joseph said to his kind of what what I, what Israel does to Joseph's sons Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph pulls one of them up and gives an extra blessing. And I'm sure that's reflected in Chronicles if you want to go dig for it. Um, Joseph said to his brothers, "I am about to die." But God will visit you and bring you up out of the land, the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So he prophesied, you're going to go back to Canaan. It will be your land, like Abraham was told. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. In Exodus, when they leave, they will take the bones of Joseph with them. He will travel with them, embalmed 40 years in the wilderness and he will be laid to rest uh, in Egypt, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, by Joshua, uh, son of Nun, son of Ephraim. Well, oh, you know, great, 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 great grandson, right? Um, and and laid to rest there. Um, so much more. I mean, isn't the lore amazing? There's more in chapter 49, and we're gonna we're gonna go. Th- we got we got a good 20 minutes here to to try, try to get all of it but with the focus on those pieces that matter most. So yeah, chapter 49 starts on page 42, wouldn't you know it? Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, it's going to lay out uh, all the promises that God gives to the tribes of Israel through their fathers. And we're also going to touch uh, uh, chapter 48. It's on the same page. You can see there where verse 16 jumps out like a poem. We're going to touch on the promises to Ephraim and Manasseh because these promises are what come to pass in history. They are a reflection of who these individuals, we can kind of know who they were as men. They have to be, it's in their blood a little bit. And then we're going to see through it all, uh, God's deliverance through the covenant promise and and how that works out. How this is about Jesus is what I mean when I say that. So again, Jacob's about to die. He knows he's going to die and he first, before he calls everybody else in, he first calls in Joseph and Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, born to an Egyptian woman whose name effectively means daughter of wisdom, who is the uh, daughter of the priest of the high god, uh, um, and uh, she gives birth to uh, first, the firstborn. His name is forgotten. Right? That's Manasseh, forgotten. And then the secondborn, Ephraim, uh, is is double, uh, or like double fruitful, double bounty. And the forgotten is actually a good thing. It's like, I forgot my pain. I forgot my brothers sold me into slavery because this kid's awesome, right? That's kind of, I'm, I'm, he's born, I'm born again moment a little bit, yeah? Um, so uh, he brings them in and, and Manessa the forgotten is a good thing. He sets upon his left knee, And Ephraim upon his right, so that his father, uh, Jacob, Israel, will bless them by putting his right hand on the firstborn and his left hand on the secondborn. Because the right hand is natural law, a symbol of power as compared to the left hand. The left hand is not bad. Americans are so dumb. We think if something is powerful and something is weak, that means good and bad. We're stupid. We just read in 1 Corinthians that's not how God works. Okay, so uh, the right hand is strong in this way. There are more right-handed people than left-handed people on the planet. It will always be this way, uh, and it just—it just is then a symbol of majority. Okay, so the majority portion is the right hand in the blessings because that's just the way it kind of is. It's just not a moral statement, yeah, huh? but it—it it is a statement about who's going to get what. So then, when Jacob, ooh, when Jacob goes like this, can you see me? No, do it on the camera here. He does like this, and he crosses. He puts his right hand on the secondborn, and his left hand on the firstborn. Joseph goes, "Wait a minute!" And now I want to rewind even further. What? Jacob is the witch born? What's his birth order? You might have a little memory of like not being so happy with how firstborns go sometimes, right? From Jacob, uh, so he crosses over. Joseph afterwards. I'll read the blessing in a moment. But Joseph afterwards says, um, "You did it wrong, Dad." And he actually says, I know, which means not that I did it wrong, actually. It means I know what I did. And don't worry, they're both going to kind of rock it out. And we're going to read that blessing now that they both get. So they have the same blessing in two parts. So the left hand is still a blessing, right? But the right hand is just a double bounty, and the double bounty goes to the guy who is named Double, who will, in fact, his people, Ephraim, will be, the double portion of Israel, the great tribe of Israel, all the way down to uh, David, and, and frankly, even after David, the whole northern kingdom when they split. Well, guess who that's about? It's about Ephraim, uh, which is Joseph. So you have the the history of Joseph and Judah here uh, coming out right um, as we as we pull through, starting with Ephraim, and Manasseh, forty-eight, verse fifteen, page forty-two, still left column. Here's the blessing. Both guys get this blessing. It's basically procreation. Lots of kids. He says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And then uh, if you look down also to verse 20, it says to the boys, by you Ephraim and Manasseh, Israel will pronounce blessings saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. So that last part, what that means is there comes a time in Israel's history after they settled the land and going forward and maybe well into the kingdoms, where if you're from the tribe of Naphtali, And you're doing a contract with a guy from the tribe of Dan and you both feel pretty good about it. As you cut the covenant, the sacrifices are done. You have the ox, he has the gold. And you say to him in the blessing, may you be like Ephraim. May God make you like Ephraim. And everyone would know that meant like rich and good looking and healthy. And everyone wants to be like me. May God make you like that. And that is who Ephraim and Manasseh are as a people. And we like to think that's what America is, right? Uh, to the world, they all want to be like, yes, I don't know. Some of them do. Yeah, um, but you get the idea here, right? It's the desire of good, and they're going to get the good. And then in this, they have become actual tribes of Jacob. They're not sons of Joseph anymore, but tribes of, of Jacob. He adopts them as sons in this moment. And that means that um, all of Joseph's other sons uh, are uh, going to be like a generation removed and come in under the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh in the tribe system, uh, which will happen later. And Chronicles, again, details how all that happens for those of you who like the, the nuts and bolts of it. Yeah, But that blessing is size, right? And here's the thing where we Americans maybe could step, step, step back and, and ask a few questions. I, I still remember, um, you know, as I was a young man in the, the 90s getting married, um, it was kind of assumed that you're going to use birth control. I just kind of assumed you're going to use birth control. And I remember like asking people about it and talking about it and trying to s- kind of seek advice about it. And, and I, I don't know that I, I found a lot of good answers. Um, I heard this one a lot, though, that we need to be good stewards of the resources we have so we shouldn't have too many children, which is kind of weird because all the stuff we have is supposed to be for the children not about how much we have, right? So it's it's not a real great argument. It's certainly not a biblical argument. But the the thing that really won me over at the end of the day to stop using birth control in my marriage, which I did, was realizing the Bible says that more children is always better. When he he blesses you in the Old Testament, he says you're going to have kids. Like That's the blessing. You're going to have kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. You're going to know them. And then you put this in Christianity with Christian baptism and the everlasting life we have. And oh my goodness, why would we not have more kids? We might be starving. They're all going to go to heaven. Do you see how weird it is where we are right now? And and I just want to, I'm not trying to say something's wrong. Something's right. Do this, do that. I'm saying they thought about it very differently than we do. Very differently than we do. To where the best blessing he can give is in three generations, you're going to run everything because all your kids are just going to outnumber everybody. And you know what? Muslims understand that as do Mormons. It's worth thinking about. Um, The blessing, again, I mean, I'm preaching the choir. We have a wonderful family dynamic here at St. Paul. We have families that want kids who understand the blessing. We don't need to, I don't need to harp on this and get anybody to repent or anything like that. But it's worth thinking about how differently they thought. And then asking, why are we so different now? And as I pulled on that thread in my life, I found all sorts of things. I was like, oh, I don't need to believe that anymore. Oh, good, okay. Well, that's more freeing to live this way now. So let me suggest it's it's all good news through faith in Jesus, yeah? 49, page 42. Jacob calls his sons together, gather yourselves. In Greek, that'd be synagogue. In in, uh, German, that would be church. (laughs) Gather, assemble yourselves together, uh, that I may tell you what shall happen in the days to come. Listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel. And he speaks to Reuben first. In the first half of Reuben's blessing, these are all blessings. Nobody gets cursed. It's all blessing. Reuben, he says, you are my firstborn. My might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, you defiled it, you went up to my couch. So, first off, Reuben was clearly a strong, strapping guy. No problems with Reuben's ability to compete. And in fact, in the tribal warfare, Reuben will not vanish entirely until he will vanish entirely. The problem with Reuben is he's unstable. And and as a tribe, they will be unstable. As you can think of all of these things, as like different ways that congregations or families lose the faith, by the way, or hold the faith, right? So he's strong, but he gets arrogant about it and he loses stability. And how does he get arrogant about it? He wants something that's not his before the time to take it, both. It's not his, and then even if it was to be his, he took it without asking. huh? And that's going up to his father's bed to sleep with his mother-in-law, kind of, right? And so he doesn't get to be the one from whom Jesus comes. He doesn't get to be promised the double blessing that Joseph gets, which Joseph's the firstborn of Rachel and will get this double blessing. Um, and uh, he doesn't get the, the rod, the scepter that Judah will get. But he still gets to be a tribe. And the people still will covenant themselves with God at Sinai. There will be Christians who we will know who are descended from Reuben, and and he is one, or we should believe that till Judgment Day says otherwise. So don't hear this as a curse, although it is a warning. These things happened for our wisdom. right? And each of these little tribes, they have something that we can learn from. Right? Strength is not all it takes, is some of Reuben's. And watch out for lust, it boils over. And, and speaking of boiling over, verse 5 and Simeon and Levi are lumped in together. Simeon and Levi are brothers, second and third born of Leah, right? Reuben's the first. Uh, weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel O my glory, let be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Ah, I think that's so cool, but that's because the history in my head, I'm going to try to shoot at you in like three sentences. Um, It's all tied to the defilement, the raping of Dinah, their sister, by the son of the king of Shechem, who then marries her and is circumcised with all the people of his city in order to make it all work out. And while they're in the fever that comes in the days after circumcision, Simeon and Levi slip in, kill all the men, And then we learn here, and they don't even kill them. They hamstring the animals. This is where you know this wasn't just them getting back. This was, the words overkill? So who's left in the city? The women and children? What were the animals? Their food? That's what they did. Brutal men. So the, the violence of anger unrestrained and the word of boiling over is in here as well. The language of boiling over like a kettle that flows over and can't be stopped. So don't come into the counsel of men who in their anger reacts, it says. You want to take this home. And then they're going to then be scattered. This is where it gets kind of cool. They're going to be scattered in Israel when they come into the land neither Simeon nor Levi will really get a portion of actual land. They just get cities. Simeon gets cities and disappears. Levi gets cities and they're the priests, which is a strange thing because aren't they supposed to be scattered in Israel? They are. And then in the scattering, God in of redemption. So this is redemption right here too, set down for Moses, born of Levi, to enter into covenant with God at Sinai. And then Aaron, his brother, priest, son of Levi, uh, to be, again, redeemed, bought with lots of blood, if you remember the story, <laughs> into the position of, of covenant uh, speaker for the people. So Levi is redeemed, but uh, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, now, all of them are gonna vanish from the big picture and we get to Judah. And Judah, it says, and, and I kind of want to set it up a little more. Um I'm just going to talk about birth order for a second. Judah's number four of six, right? And then Joseph and Benjamin are together, which makes eight from Leah and Rachel. You got four other guys from the other two, and they're going to come at the very end of this thing, kind of like a last thought, except for that Joseph and Benjamin come at the very, very end with a major stamp. So Judah is here, he's exactly where he should be. He's the fourth in line from the first wife. But there's not really a reason in the story before this point that we should expect what's happening to happen. Everything about the story is told us Joseph's the guy. He's obviously the guy. So what happens here that makes Israel, Jacob, split his blessings? So he gives the double portion to Joseph's family, but the scepter and the rod of rain, which is the covenant promise of the Messiah to Judah. And I, you know, I gotta say, I, I probably, I don't know. But I like the answer I read in a commentary by two guys named Kyle and Dalich, which is this. That at this point in the history, it's it's so messed up that Jacob really has to demonstrate something bigger than power, strength, and might is sufficient. It's the calling on God that is sufficient. And so this is their argument again, take it or leave it. The prophecy is entirely based on Judah's name. Entirely. Joseph's name is increase. Judah's name is confession. Or perhaps give thanks in the name of Yahweh. It's like alleluia, but alleluia is all up. And this one's a little more like down. You know, the praise of Yahweh, but it's, it's it's down rather than up, like alleluia is. So based solely on the fact that, uh, you look how messed up my family is, but this kid's name is Yahweh will do it. I think that makes sense. Judah, Jesus will do it. Yahweh will do it. Your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. For Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. Or translate, until he comes to Shiloh. We'll come back to that. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Excuse me. You see in there a very clear promise that he just can't lose, which... There's a hint of this in his life. Actually, he never really does have a problem. He doesn't do things right, but he turns out well. The whole thing with Tamar, well, she ends up being the father of the or mother of the kid that Jesus will be born from. So, you know, redemption is all the way through Judah's life. Redemption by words too. So this word Judah again, jehada, uh, that means to like give grateful thanks to god when you when you're talking about god this word always means like gratefulness but when you're talking about men talking to each other it always means the admission of wrong so god chooses the name of these guys are wrong and he puts inside of it a promise that from them will come one who can't be again i it's a pretty good argument for like i went into 49 i was like i got no idea i think it sounds pretty good right now i hope you're with me amen Amen? Okay, let's talk about the lion. Lions are a big deal in ancient Israel because in the Middle East, there were lots of them. There are not now. We killed them all. The Barbary lion does not exist. The Asiatic lion is incredibly rare, nearly extinct. The African lion is a lion. They're of the same kind. But look it up. The Barbary lion was cool looking, man. It's neat looking compared to the, the standard African. African is bigger, I believe. Barbary would like get up in the trees, though. Yeah. <laughs> Lions in the trees in Israel, not a good thing. They have like six different words, seven, eight different words for lion. That's how important lion was to the culture. Lions in different states. They have one that just means it's roaring. It's The roaring lion. Uh, here we have a couple of things. We have a cub, we have the regular lion, and then we have the lioness with her prey. Um, and the, the cub is just meaning like it hasn't really come to pass yet, right? David's a long way away at this point. Well, this is a promise about David crushing his enemies, and that's a promise about Jesus crushing the devil, right? But That's the cub part. It's the seed. But then the lion part is this. Here's the thing about lions that I I hope I can get out. I've been thinking about it all week. I haven't said it yet. The value of a lion is his pride. And the beautiful thing about the pride of a lion is it's never alone because that's what you call them when they're together. And so the lion sits there proud in his pride, And who would dare disturb them? That's the promise to Christianity in Jesus, okay? Like you're a lion compared to the rest of the world in Jesus. Who would dare disturb you? You're noble now because of our pride, not our arrogance, but the dignity bestowed upon us through the washing of regeneration in Jesus' name. The lioness, They don't really call her female lion like you could. Hebrew works this way. Like you have lion and lion female ending. Like that's how they do everything, but not the lioness. She gets a special name. They call her the fiery lion. Now just let a little man-woman dynamic settle into your hearts and think about it. I I can see how that could be, especially when she's got her cubs, right? Like the the male lion is ultimately more dangerous, but not really. (laughs) Not really, because he's kind of doesn't have time for you. And the lioness with her prey, she's going up to the mountains to take her prey to her cubs. And you're like, stop. She's like, what? Mama bear is how we talk about it these days. Okay. Uh, So all of this here is given into this scepter. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. It's all the same word in Hebrew. And it goes from the shepherd's staff down to the little tiny stick that the king would put between his legs. It's covered in gold and diamonds. And it points at him. And it means I get to talk right? I get to talk. It's the sign of his power. And this in Israel is being given to Judah forever so that, again, Jesus might be the one who's struck by uh, the devil like a shepherd, again, uh, rises from the dead with, uh, he doesn't even need a staff. No. He gives you bread and wine and a new covenant in his blood and all these things. All right, we're almost at a time when I want to at least hear Joseph's promise. I'm sorry that we don't get to the other guys. I'm going to say this part, you know, Benjamin's a ravenous wolf. Issachar's a strong donkey. You know, there's animals all the way through this. In every case, it's good. It's actually good. It's never a bad thing. So these animals are an attribute of them as a people. However, they will not be as sufficient as the promises given to Joseph and Judah. And so in every case, they kind of end up fading into the background as well. But they're still part of the history of Israel. And you might recall, like, so Benjamin's a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devour, devours prey. Right? Benjamin can be scary. And he, you know, Benjamin goes on the war, for, war path against all of Israel at one point. And then they kill all the men. And then God calls Saul from their midst to be their king out of this tribe that had been decimated and all all this kind of stuff. And then don't forget that Saul of Tarsus is of the tribe of Benjamin. So all these tribes exist. Even though the north is destroyed, all these tribes continue in the south. All the way down to even today, you'll find people from the various tribes. Um, Joseph, again, to complete the story this morning, gets this glorious, powerful double blessing And what I want you to do for yourself now is to take this, that it does happen to Joseph and Ephraim in the land. I want you to take it. I want you to put it with the promise to Judah and the rain. It all goes back together in Jesus. It's all about you. It's all about us. It's all about our future, both now and forever. And that means through faith in these promises, faith in the knowledge that God is on your side, that you're going to go through fire, you're going to go through water, but he's going to make you pass through. And then the day when it goes over your head, you're just going to fall asleep and lay your burden down and get to sing a little more, maybe, while you wait for an even better time that comes when the rest of us get to join you. This promise is for you and your children today and forever. And I don't mean just in some sort of like non, I'm going to use a big word for the internet, non-realized eschatology way. honestly, The God of the Old Testament is your God. He will answer the prayers that the Old Testament has. Call upon in every trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks. And you will find that whatever you have is enough. That every day, as bad as it might get, the path is straight for what is good. And that the people that God blesses you with in your life are worth far more than anything else you could build. Especially as you know that all of it's just a gift. Anyway. So, just to close this morning on Joseph's promises, these apply to you, take them home. Joseph is a fruitful bough, verse 22, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall like a tree planted by springs of water, bringing fruit in season, yes? The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers next week. Set apart in Jesus' name. Amen.